Hey, so this morning we're continuing our teaching series, You Asked For It, and here was the idea behind this is, I live on Thwing Street over in Roxbury, and I love my neighbors, and some of my neighbors uh, love me too, but I, I wanted to teach a series that I, was, that I thought would address topics that would actually appeal to Thwing Street. I want to address the topics that Boston is thinking about, that people in this city care about and are concerned about, and so that's where this came from. And I shared this just a minute ago, but Heather, um, my wife Heather, had a friend in the city that she had met just through, the, through parks and, and kids and that kind of stuff, and her name was Kim, super sweet lady. And Heather had met her, she told me about Kim for months and months and months, six months, 12 months, she's still talking about her, I've still never met her. One day it works out where they're over in, in the park, um, we call it Tom Brady Park, I don't know what it's really called, but one person saw Tom Brady there one time, and now it's Tom Brady Park forever. And so they're like, Heather's like, hey, come, come out there, meet me and, me and Kim. Now, Kim knows what I do for a living. It's sort of like if you're a minister, if you're a pastor, it's sort of an occupational hazard that people just talk to you about, you know, God stuff and religious stuff. So I go over to Tom Brady Park to meet them. And when I get there, I see Kim. I say, hi, it's so nice to meet you. so nice to meet you too. What's the deal with hell? And I'm like... Help me understand your question, please. Can I have a little bit of context? What is this about? But what it was was she knew that I was a religious person, right? She knows that I'm a, a Christian, that I follow Jesus. And this is the number one question on the top of her mind. You know, I didn't name the sermon this. Uh, it's called What's the Deal with Hell? It's not named that because of Seinfeld. It's named that because of Kim, because this is what people wonder, right? It's like, what's the deal with hell? That's like the first thing that came out of her mouth. And I want to address that together today. Um, before we get into it, some of what we're going to be doing is deconstructing the ideas that people normally and naturally have about hell. Um, do we have any people in the room uh, who like Star Wars? Are there Star Wars people in here? No one's enough of a nerd to say, woo, but you're here. <laughs> and you know who you are. And um, in, oh boy, I'm going to get this wrong. If my son was here, he'd correct me, just like that sermon on Daniel. Um, <laughs> He was right, by the way. It was 30 days, not 90 days. In, in, um, there's this one scene in one of the newer Star Wars movies where uh, Luke Skywalker asks the, the girl who's learning about the Force, the young woman, and he says, what is the Force? And she says, it's a power Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. And he says, that's amazing. Every single word in that sentence was wrong. And that's kind of how I feel when I ask people about hell sometimes. It's like, hey, what do you think hell is? You say, like, um, it's an underground torture chamber locked from the outside. And I think, you know, that's amazing because every single word in that sentence was wrong. So what I want to do today is strip away some of the myths, strip away some of the, the layers of visions of hell that we've received from the Middle Ages and Dante's Inferno and some of those things, go back to the Bible and what it actually says about what hell is, and then I said I'm going to close by giving you three very good reasons to believe in hell. I think that um, it's important for us to address this directly because there's a feeling in a sense in our, in our culture and society and in our churches that hell is like the dirty little secret of Christianity, that it's one of those doctrines that we just need to move on from, that we need to get past and, and get beyond and, and, and come up with something different. But it is a core part of Christianity, and so if you don't address it, if you don't face it, and you don't understand it, it just nags at the back of your mind and creates doubt, 
or prevents you from believing in the first place. Dorothy Sayers, um, the famous uh, novelist, said this about whether we should move on from hell. She said, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. That's strong words. In other words, this is part and parcel of the message of Jesus Christ, so understanding it is part of understanding Jesus. So we need to get it right. Today, as I attempt to argue that believing in hell is a very good idea, we're going to start by looking at a passage of Scripture, the, the lengthiest passage of Scripture where Jesus himself talks about hell, and then we'll move into the, the three ideas, because I want to make sure that our message today is grounded in Scriptures, and we're doing that by looking at Luke chapter 16. Now, this is <coughs> in your teaching notes, or if you're a renewal member and you've got your Bible with you, pull that out. And we're just going to walk through this story together. There's a story that Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. And in it, he touches, this is his most direct teaching and talking on the concept of eternal judgment. It starts off in verse 19. This is, like I said, this is a story Jesus told. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So we're meeting our first character here. We have a rich man. He's clothed in purple. Purple is a dye in the ancient world. I think it's made from sea slugs. Did you learn that in like middle school social studies class? I'm pretty sure purple dye was made from sea slugs. Anyway, that's free piece of knowledge. You can have that. You can Google that later and email me if I'm wrong. My email address is Nicole at (laughs) RenewalChurchBoston.com. And it says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. It's trying to tell you he's incredibly rich. Now, this is really funny to me because linen is what they wear as undergarments. So it essentially says that he wore a lot of purple and had very fancy underwear. And that's how you know how rich the guy was. It also says that he feasted sumptuously every day. And so it's trying to help you understand that this is also a person who does not follow the law of God. Right, this is Jesus who's Jewish and he's talking to all of his followers in the countryside who are Jewish. And so the the context for all these stories that Jesus tells is Jewish, okay? Now, you can feast sumptuously six days a week in Judaism, but you can't do it seven days a week because of the Sabbath. And so he's breaking God's law. He's wealthy. He's displaying his wealth. He's breaking the Sabbath. He's also making his servants do the same. Don't think a guy who's this rich is making his own food. He's living the good life. That's our first character, the rich man. Now, verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Here's the foil to the rich man. He's poor, he has a name, and he's covered with sores. Verse 21. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So he is incredibly poor. He is disregarded by the rich man. And what you're supposed to see in the contrast of these two people, you're supposed to see even more clearly that the rich man is disregarding the law of God by not caring for the beggar who's laid at his gate. Now, I want to give you a couple of scriptures from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that show that the rich man is breaking the law of God. So I picked out two of them for you. 
And they're, they're showing how he should be caring for Lazarus. Here's Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Seems pretty clear. Seems to address this situation. Isaiah 58, 6 through 7 says something very similar. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every, every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So do you see with crystal clarity now, the, the story is setting up the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is someone who does not follow the word of God or the law of God. You can see that though the rich man is living the good life, he's living it apart from faith in God. He's not living with wealth, he's living for wealth, and it's causing him to ignore the commandments of God. Because those are two very different things, aren't they? Living with wealth and living for wealth. Right, the wealth in the Bible, like, okay, let me put it this way, being wealthy in the Bible is, is not morally good or morally evil. Right? Because in the Bible, you have all these examples of incredibly godly, moral people who are very, very wealthy. Like, so Abraham's a great example of that. Job is a great example of that. But you also have innumerable examples in the Bible of people who are very, very wealthy, and they use their wealth to oppress the poor. So being wealthy is neither moral nor immoral. However, the the Bible does tend to portray money itself as um, dangerous. Let's just put it that way. Like, like that there's an inherent temptation within gaining a lot of money that you have to be on guard against personally. So while being wealthy or poor is neither moral nor immoral, that money itself, you just have to be careful because it's very dangerous spiritually because you can start to rely on your wealth instead of relying on God. So we have this rich man who's living for wealth, not with wealth. It's caused him to ignore the law of God and to neglect Lazarus. This man delights in living in luxury instead of loving Lazarus. Lazarus. So, we have our two characters, and we have this tension between them. Now, look at what happens, because here's where the story kicks into high gear. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some translations would say Abraham's bosom, and it's sort of like, well, that's archaic language. What does that mean? It means something like heaven. It's the place where your forefathers went to, where you are at rest and at peace. So, you know, we would just call that heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So what happens is there's this incredible reversal between the two people. You see, we can't help. I mean, we just, it's just hardwired into our nature that when we see incredibly wealthy people, we think, oh, there's a person who's blessed. And when we see someone who's unbelievably poor to the point that they're, um, they're naked with no clothes, hungry, and the dogs on the street are licking their sores, we say, there's somebody, we don't use this language, but we think there's somebody who's cursed. And yet, 
Every single one of us is going to die. And if death is the end of your time on the earth, but it's not the end of you, then it becomes very important what happens after you die. And what happens here is an incredible reversal of roles. That it turns out that the rich man, though he looked blessed, was actually cursed. And the poor man, though he looked cursed, was actually blessed. And this helps you to see that, um, I wrote this in your notes, that hell is the surprising conclusion to the good life lived without God. That there's something about faith I guess I didn't put it in your notes I thought about putting it in your notes there's something about faith that has the the power and potential to move you into life beyond life in rest and in peace The rest of this story unpacks for us what we mean by hell and starts to deconstruct some of the, uh, some of the myths that have grown up around the idea of hell. Let's continue to look. Verse 24. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. When I was younger, you know, I I sort of had this vision of hell that was uh, the flames, the pit, the devil, and the pitchfork. And it's just, it's incredible to me that, like, as I say that, you all know what I'm talking about. Okay. That was actually never very scary to me especially when I was younger. It wasn't scary because it seemed like such a caricature. It seemed like a cartoon. It almost seemed unreal. Until it was explained to me like this. He's thirsty, but he'll never get water. You know, the rich man in this story is still waiting for a drip of water. Hell is a place where your desires are always increasing and they are never satisfied. Hell is a place where you long for love and you never receive love. Hell is a place where you long for recognition and no one ever recognizes you or knows you. Hell is a place where you long for control and your life spins chaotically out of control for eternity. Hell is a place where your desires always grow bigger and they are never satisfied and that is terrifying to me. It is absolutely terrifying. I think that um, you've probably seen and experienced this concept yourself, this idea that your desires could be increasing and never satisfied. Because human lives in the here and now on this earth can foreshadow eternity. Every once in a while, if you stay in Christian circles long enough, you'll meet, um, you'll meet this old saint who's like, a lot of times they're, they're older and they're 60, 70, 80 years old. And they've been walking with Jesus for so long that their life is full of joy and peace and the presence of God, no matter what life brings at them. And their life is foreshadowing heaven, right? Their life is a picture of what heaven will be like. Joy and peace and the presence of God for eternity. But I know that you've also encountered people 
In fact, no disparagement on the particular people, but you know full well that if you drive down Mass Ave, you will run across people whose desires are always increasing, and yet they are never satisfied. And maybe that's been some of you. I mean, that's some of us, I know for a fact, some of us in this church have lived like that, have lived through the struggle of addiction, and we always want more, and yet we are never satisfied. If you carry that on into eternity, that's hell. And you can make it start right now. Human lives foreshadow eternity. And hell is a place where your desires are always increasing, but never satisfied. I mentioned that a lot of people see hell as this torture chamber that's locked from the outside. Hell is not a place where you would even need to be tortured by someone. Hell is a place where you are tormented by your own unfulfilled desires. That's what we see here. Desire always increasing, never satisfied. The story goes on. It actually gets worse. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This is God speaking to the rich man, or excuse me, maybe it's Abraham speaking to the rich man. And he's saying that this is permanent that there are, no, there are no changes after you die, that the decisions you make in this life affect your eternity. You get one life to live, and then comes judgment. As every human being, one life, and then comes judgment, and your eternity is fixed. It's permanent. And then verse 27, the rich man speaks back, and then he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So here's, a, here's the rich man. He's in Hades. He's still bossing Lazarus around like he's his servant. He said, hey, go, go send him back to my brothers. He's also, he's also um, he, it, it's sort of like hinted that he thinks this is an unfair situation, like he hasn't been warned. And that, and that his brothers need more of a warning than what they've already gotten. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, you had your warning. Everybody had their warning already. Right? It, was made, it was made crystal clear. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, of course, this is Jesus telling this story, and he's foreshadowing this idea because he's about to, he's going to die on the cross. He'll be buried for three days. He'll rise from the dead. And he's, he's kind of pointing out that if you have a hard, unbelieving heart where you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe, miracles aren't going to change a hard and unbelieving heart in you. So even if someone rises from the dead, that's not going to, it's not going to radically change things for you. This helps us also to see that hell is chosen. That it comes down to faith. The, the rich man neglected everything the scriptures said. Instead of operating out of faith, he operated out of unbelief. So he lives in denial. He's angry at God. He chooses to live without God. And God, in his great respect for human choice, gives him what he wanted. That's also terrifying to me. Because as a human being, you can often want things that you think are good for you that are actually terrible for you. 
And God, in his grace and mercy, respects the choices that you make as a person. Have you ever lived through the consequences of a decision or a choice that you made? And you think, wow, God let me have what I wanted there, and that was plenty of punishment. That's hell. That's literally hell, where you say, I don't want God, I don't want God in my life, I don't want the rest and peace of knowing God. And God says, you can have that for eternity. Hell is self-chosen. And so that's the story that Jesus gives us that paints a picture of hell. And for the rest of our time today, I want to move from the scriptures to three reasons that believing in hell is a very good idea. And on your notes, this is on the second inside page, and there's some blanks for you to write some things down. You know, hell is not something that we must embarrassingly stumble our way through as Christians, like kind of awkwardly explain away to those who are interested in investigating who Jesus was. No, the the way God has set up life and eternity is good. And so here's three reasons believing hell is a very good idea. Number one, hell demonstrates God's respect for human choice. We touched on this already. Hell demonstrates God's respect for human choice. Imagine for a second that you're in heaven. Who would you be furious if you saw them in heaven? Maybe think throughout world history. Maybe think through your childhood. You see, you believe that there should be consequences for evil. We, we all believe that. We all believe that there should be consequences for evil. Believing in hell, if you, let me put it this way, if you wish that hell didn't exist, it's like wishing that God did not care deeply about oppression or injustice or evil. A God that creates heaven but not hell is a God who is nonchalant about the suffering you experience at the hands of others. That's how seriously God takes sin. Now, sin is an unbelievably helpful word for Christians. It's not a word that we use too much in our culture and society. We use it sometimes. But, you know, sin is really helpful because it's this, um, it's this wrong action that you take that has moral judgment implied in it. And so there are times when we all make mistakes. Like, I get it, we make mistakes. There are times when we slip up. But there's also times when we do it on purpose. I mean, like, what do you call that? It's like, if you, if you, if you, if you commit adultery and you cheat on your spouse, what, what should that be called? Should that be called an uh-oh? Like, is that an oopsie? Is that a mistake? No, it's a sin. And when you call it that, you're honoring the truth that the victim has experienced, and you're helping the perpetrator to change. That's, that's, that's sin. And Christians have this this um, foundational belief that all human beings sin. And therefore, God has an obligation as a just judge to condemn and punish sin. Human beings also have the choice, according to the Bible, as to whether to trust 
put their trust and their faith in Jesus to forgive them of their sins or not. You have a choice as to whether you want God in your life. You have a choice as to whether you, you want to have a relationship with God. You have a choice as to whether you want Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. You have a choice. Every person in here today has a choice to make about what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. And the three biggest decisions you'll ever make in your life are what am I going to do with Jesus, who am I going to marry, and then what am I going to do with the gifts and talents God's given me. But if you don't get the first question right, what am I going to do with Jesus Christ, you are headed for an eternity separated with God. It is God's great respect for our choice. When you die, there's not some moment where God's like, hey, I know you didn't want me in your life, but I'm going to forcibly convert you now so that you can go to heaven. It doesn't happen. He respects you too much to do that. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. C.S. Lewis has a a quote as well where he he talks about how the choices that we make in this life carry on and echo throughout eternity. And we talked about this idea of foreshadowing. C.S. Lewis says it more eloquently than me because he's C.S. Lewis. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. God does not send. He lets us choose. That's the first reason believing in hell is a very good idea. Number two, belief in hell promotes peace on earth. I don't see any kids in here. This is, there's a PG-13 quote in here. Belief in hell promotes peace on earth. The belief that God will repay violence means that we do not have to. If you believe that God will right the wrongs of this world, then you don't have to right those wrongs. The memory verse for today is Romans 12, 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The justice of God allows you to leave justice to God. And so if there is divine and eternal justice, then you don't have to take matters into your own hands. You don't have to make them pay. You don't have to square the accounts. God can do that for you. That allows you to live in peace. Miroslav Volf is an author from Eastern Europe who who saw this firsthand. And he has this quote. It's a little bit longer And it's about how um, in the face of true evil and violence, the only way to break the cycle of increasing and escalating violence is a belief that God practices justice. Listen closely. This is what he says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine to speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? 
Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. When you are confronted with the full force of evil, to be nonviolent, you must believe in the judgment of God. It is a logical connection in the human life. And here's the third and final reason for believing that hell is a very good idea. Lastly, hell shows the depths of God's mercy and love. And here we draw from C.S. Lewis again, who says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so. On Calvary, to forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that that is what he does. God has gone to incredible lengths to help us avoid his judgment and his wrath against evil and oppression, injustice, and sin. You know, what it costs you to... Re- if it, Let me put it this way. In Matthew, Jesus says, um, do not fear those... Well, let me get it right. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, Jesus is saying here something like, um, no physical... can." No physical destruction can be compared with the, the spiritual destruction of hell. And yet, in a very real sense, Jesus waded through hell to rescue you. And on the cross, Jesus, Jesus experiences the separation from God, which is itself the essence of hell. On the cross, Jesus suffers the agony and the humiliation of abandonment, that he, he willingly undergoes that in your place. Um, in First Peter, it says of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus wades through hell to rescue you from your sin, to rescue you from judgment, so that you don't have to go through that. And that is serious love. It shows you how deeply God loves you that he would pay that price for you. No other, no other savior even comes close. Jesus is the one who takes all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of the consequences and all of the wrath of God onto himself so that you can experience peace and joy and the presence of God. And that is mercy and love. And the worse hell is, 
the more clearly you see God's love for you through Jesus Christ because he was willing to endure it for you. Those are the three reasons believing in hell is a very good idea. God's respect for human choice, it promotes peace on earth, and it shows the depths of God's mercy and love. And I just want to say to you as we close today, as, um, as your pastor, or maybe you're a guest here today just as a friend, right? when you die, the Bible says that when you die, it's the end of your life, but it's not the end of you. And you have to face judgment for your life. And that you will either experience increasing joy and peace and the presence of God, or you will suffer eternal regret as your desires increase, but they are never satisfied. The difference between those two things, the difference between those destinations, is not how good you are in this life. And that's surprising to a lot of people. The difference is who pays the consequences for your sin? Are you going to pay the consequences of your evil choices for eternity in hell? Or in faith, will you reach out to Jesus who paid the penalty for your sins on the cross and say in faith, Jesus, would you cover my sins so that when I stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my perfect place, heaven? You know, if God takes a bunch of sinners and brings us into heaven, we would ruin the place. We'd turn it back into Boston. (laughs) It's like, why should I let you in? What are you going to say on that day? When you stand before the almighty God with all of his holiness, with all of his perfect sight that knows every word and every thought of your mind, what on earth are you going to say on that day? You will either say, God condemn me because you are just to do it. Or you will say, I'm with Jesus and he already paid. That's it. That's the only choice. And so in faith, you can say to God, today, God, in faith, I want to trust Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life and know with confidence that when you stand before the throne of God above, above, you have a strong and perfect plea that you will have a great high priest whose name is love, whose death covers your sins. And so I don't, I I just, at this point, I'm just pleading with you. There is no more important decision than you could ever make. This determines your eternal destiny. Trust in Christ today. Give give your life to him. And not only is your eternal destiny secure, but the life he gives you to lead now is abundant. And so instead of your desires not being fulfilled, they're abundantly filled by God. It is the best life you can possibly live. When you follow Jesus, it, it leads to life. Like the reason I, you understand the reason I have a family is because of Jesus. Like the reason I'm still married is because of Jesus. The reason that I'm not just completely and totally self-centered is because of Jesus. The reason that I don't do drugs anymore and that I, like I would be divorced in a gutter somewhere if it weren't for Jesus. And so if you turn from your sins and you put your faith in him, he gives you a life now. He gives you a meaning and a purpose to live. And then he gives you eternity where your joy and your peace and your knowledge of God is always increasing. And there is, there is, 
There is no more important decision than you will ever make. And so I, I, I have nothing left to do today but invite you to pray and follow him. And if God is speaking into your heart right now and saying this is your moment, then it's your moment. And I'm, I, I'm sorry, you came on the most intense day of the year. I didn't mean for it to be this. I just... I didn't mean for it to be this, but maybe God has you here for a reason. Like, I don't believe in consequence, co- uh, coincidences, and I bet you don't either. And so why has God brought you here today? And so I'm going to pray and give you the opportunity to put your life in Jesus' hands. And then you can know, you can have the certainty of knowing that heaven is your home. So.